I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel this morning. We're going to continue our study of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel as we kind of eavesdrop in on the life of King David. Our hope is that we will learn from his life better how to seek God. Our elders have targeted that as our, as our overarching priority this year, seeking God wholeheartedly. And so in light of that, let me pose the question, how are you doing at seeking God? Are you doing better now than you were in January? Okay. And if not, you've got six months to get your act together. This is the year of seeking God wholeheartedly. So uh, hopefully today's message will be an encouragement to us all. In that regard, and we need it because we live in a culture that has expertise for seeking everything except God. Have you noticed that? Want to buy a car? The car dealer will provide expert expertise to help you seek the car that you want. Want to buy a house? Realtor will provide you expert expertise in seeking the house you want. Uh, Would you like to be wealthy? Investment bankers will provide you expert expertise in seeking how to be wealthy. Famous, you can hire an agent who will help you seek out fame. We have entire television channels dedicated to helping you seek to buy things you will never need. It's called the shopping channel. Our society is full of experts in helping you seek, but almost no expertise in how do you seek the most important Uh, search of your life, and that is how do you seek after God? And friends, you need to know, that's why we're here. So that together as we gather to worship God, we are encouraged and provoked by one another to seek God wholeheartedly. I don't know how many times out of the corner of my eye I've caught a worshiper, a row or two in front of me, after God, and it makes me want to Seek after him too. And that's why we're here. To sit in glad-hearted submission to the word of God as it's proclaimed and see what can we do? What can I do to seek God with all my heart? So that's what we want to do right now. And I'd like to lead us in prayer towards that end. Would you bow with me? God, we, we are seekers often of lesser things. In these next few minutes... Turn our, heart, our hearts towards the great treasure, towards you, that we might seek our joy in you, that we might find our delight in you. Lord, may your word have its desired effect on our lives now. Help us see you and help us see us in light of you. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right. King Saul, in our story, as we're going through First and Second Samuel, King Saul, the first king of God's people, has just died in battle. And as a result of that, King David, the heir apparent to the throne, is no longer a fugitive. Saul was uh, in jealous rage pursuing David, trying to kill him, ran him completely out of the land. He was seeking refuge with the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. But now Saul is no more. And David's status has changed. He can now return to the land he's been anointed by God to rule as king. Now, as we start 
Today, I want to warn you, we're going to go through chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Large amounts of text will be on the screen or in your lap in front of you. We'll have to read a lot. So as a ministry to whoever's sitting next to you, please sharpen your elbows use them freely okay, to make sure that you stay with us. Chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? Again, he'd been hiding out outside the land. Now can I come back? And the Lord said, go up. And David said, where shall I go? And he said, to Hebron. And the Lord answered, or the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David also took the men who were with him, each with his own family. And they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. You remember, Saul's body had been um, decapitated and dismembered and nailed to the wall outside the Philistine cities as a way of desecrating and dishonoring him. And these men of Jabesh-Gilead snuck out at night and took his body and burned and buried it to give it an honorable um, end. He says, May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you've done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. And there, there are three things just in these short introductory verses that I want to just underscore about the kind of man that David is that makes him a man we want to uses a model, an example, and a mentor to us. First, he seeks God. He seeks God's guidance. Um, His leadership is marked by this phrase repeatedly, in essence. So what do you think, God? God, what do you think? What should I do? That marks David's leadership repeatedly. Um, And then... He obeys what God tells him. God says, go up to Hebron. David packs his bags, and that's where he goes. He seeks guidance in order to obey it. And the last thing is, you notice the way he honors men who have honored God. Um, These men of Jabesh-Gilead risk their lives to honor God's anointed, and David now honors them. He deals with these men of Gilead with a measure of integrity, I would say. Because Saul was David's greatest adversary. More than anyone else, Saul sought to kill David. And David could easily have been aggravated at these men because of the way they treated the man who sought his life. But he honors what they did because they've honored God. And it's this kind of integrity that condemns what is evil and honors what is good in spite of personal consequences. It's that integrity that God is going to use to bring his people to unity. Um, Because there's a problem. In verse 8, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, and he made him king over Gilead and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. House of David, however, the um, house of Judah, excuse me, followed David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So we have a problem 
one people, two kings. And it's divided the people of God as a result. Um, the people of Judah follow David, and the rest of Israel follows Ishbosheth, Saul's son, who's been put in place by Abner. Um, David, you'll notice, has been anointed by God to be king and then affirmed by the people. Ishbosheth is just Abner's puppet, put in place by a military commander. But this north-south division in God's people is huge simply because God hates division in his people. It's throughout the Bible. If you look in Psalms, it says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live in unity. Flip over to the New Testament and 1 Corinthians says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. And that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. 1 Corinthians again in chapter 12 says, There should be no division in the body, but its part should have equal concern for each other. God hates it when his people are divided. And that's exactly what's happening in the chapters that we're looking at. And God is going to bring about the unity of his people through the integrity of their leader, David. Um, let's see. Verse 12. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zariah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. So we have, what we have here is two military commanders from the two kings meeting together. Abner is, um, Abner is Saul's commander, now under Ishbosheth ostensibly, and Joab is David's commander, and they meet together. One group sat down on one side of the pool, one group on the other side, and Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand-to-hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted off, 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Each man grabbed his opponent by the head, thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkaf Hazarim. Um, what we are reading today is probably one of the gorier sections of the Bible, which means that your seven-year-olds will love it, okay? So you can read this to your kids at home, your boys especially, and they will dig it, but it is nasty. Now, what we have going on here may be a thing called representative combat, where they each select a handful of warriors, in this case, 12, perhaps representing the 12 tribes, and they're going to fight each other in lieu of a full-scale battle. Whoever prevails, the other will serve. That's a, that's a very likely possibility here. But, of course, uh, it's also possible that this is nothing but some kind of insane macho competition. And either way, it simply leads to an all-out, full-scale war. The battle that day that followed that combat was very fierce. And Abner and the men of Israel were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, who led him, Abishai, and Asahel, his brother. Now, Asahel was fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, Saul's commander, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. And Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Asahel? It is, he answered. And Abner said to him, turn aside to the right or left, take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Asahel would not stop chasing him. 
Again, Abner warned him, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Asahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Asahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. told you the seven-year-olds would dig it. He fell there and died on the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Ammah near Gia on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. Full-scale battle ensues this little uh, combat session that goes on. And finally, they take their stand on this hill, and peace is declared. And the summary of the battle reads this way in verse 30. Joab returned from pursuing Abner and assembled all his men. Besides Asahel, 19 of David's men were found missing, but David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Asahel and burned him, or buried him, excuse me, in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. Chapter 3 continues. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And then it lists the names of a whole boatload of sons born to David by a whole boatload of wives and concubines. And the purpose of this listing, again, is to contrast what's going on between the house of Saul and the house of David. The house of David is getting stronger and stronger. Many, many sons are being born to him. The house of Saul is getting weaker and weaker. All of Saul's sons are being killed. The only one left is Ishbosheth, whom I will call Ishi for the remainder of our talk. And I'll try to tell you why as we proceed along. Verse 6. During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner, the military commander, had been strengthening his own position over Ishi in the house of Saul. Now Saul had had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Ea, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, "Why did you sleep with my father's concubine?" Obviously there's a euphemism going on here and to sleep with someone's concubine was essentially to take their throne or declare that you had their authority. Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said and he answered, "Am I a dog's head?" On Judah's side, on David's side, this very day I am loyal to the house of your father and Saul, to this family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, he says, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So Abner says, forget you, Ishi, you have accused me of this, so I'm going with David and I'm taking all Israel with me. And Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Now Abner is scheming here to elevate himself and his own position in Israel. A schism opens up between him and Ishi, so he sides now with David and seeks to be elevated in his position there. Anger, Abner is angry at the accusation that he slept with Saul's concubine, but he does not deny it. Verse 12. Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David. Whose land is it? Make an agreement with me, and I'll help bring all Israel 
over to you. And so David in the verses that follow and Abner broker a deal where Israel will now be aligned with David. David's only request is that his wife come back to him, Michal, who had been given by Saul to another woman. And uh, it says, Abner went around and spoke to all of Israel for some time. He says, you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. And the Lord promised David, Abner said, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. He went to Hebron to tell David everything that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin wanted to do. Okay, one more screen. When Abner, who had 20 men, came with him, came to David at Hebron, David prepared a feast for him and his men. And Abner said to David, let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king so that they may make a compact with you and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. And David sent Abner away and he went in peace. So we have this new alliance formed. You notice it's between Israel in the north and Judah in the south becoming one people, but it's not between Ishi and David, the two kings. It's between Abner and David. Abner has effectively usurped Ishi as, as the head of that collection of people and is now moving to align himself with David. Ishi, by the way, the name Ishbosheth means man of shame. And he is a spineless man who can do nothing in this passage except kowtow to David's demand for his wife to come back, and he sends her back. He's afraid of Abner. He's afraid of David. Well, just then, David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. So Joab, David's military commander, is now back. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he'd gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and he'd gone in peace. So Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he's gone. Joab is thinking you could have killed him on the spot and taken care of your adversary. He says, you know Abner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you're doing. He was a spy, Joab says. So Joab left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know this. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gateway as though to speak with him privately and there to avenge the blood of his brother, Asahel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he dies. So to complicate things, this agreement to bring the nation together has been brokered, but then Joab kills Abner as an act of revenge. When David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. So Joab is saying publicly, or David is, I had no part in it. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or leans on a crutch or falls by the sword or lacks food. David curses Joab for what he's done. Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother in the battle at Gibeon. See, this is not a casualty of war. This is a vindictive Brutal murder born out of personal vengeance. 
And David's integrity demands that he distance himself from the actions of his military commander. He will not endorse it. Though he could benefit from it, he wants nothing to do with it. His integrity demands that he honor what is good and condemn what is evil, even at personal risk or disadvantage. David said to Joab and all the people with him, notice he includes Joab in these instructions, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner, that is in front of his funeral procession. King David himself walked behind a bier. They buried Abner in Hebron, and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang a lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one falls before wicked men. And and all the people wept over him again. And then they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. So David is publicly mourning the death of Abner. And though he could have benefited from this death, he will have nothing to do with it because of his integrity. Honor what is good, condemn what is evil, no matter what it costs you. And that little phrase that characterizes David's integrity would do us well. Simply because of the culture we live in. There's a book um, by Stephen Levitt called Freakonomics. And in it, he tells a story about something that happened one spring evening at midnight in 1987... Seven million American children suddenly disappeared in one night. And none of us knew about this. Was it the worst kidnapping wave in history, the article says? It says hardly. The clue is it was the night of April 15th. And the internal revenue service service, excuse me, had just changed a rule. Instead of merely listing the name of each dependent child, tax filers were now required to provide a social security number. And suddenly, seven million children disappeared. They had been on their parents' tax returns the year before, but now they were gone. They were phantom exemptions. One out of every ten dependent children in America disappeared. See, David is calling us to a level of integrity that prohibits any involvement or benefit from something that is shady or questionable. Honor what is good and those who do it and disdain evil and refuse to benefit from it. Psalm 15 puts it this way. It says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill, he whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart, has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong, casts no slur on his fellow men, but despises a vile man, but honors those who fear the Lord. And then who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who keeps his promise, who keeps his word even when it makes him be disadvantaged by it. That's what God is looking for. And that's the kind of integrity that God uses to bring his people together. Back in chapter 3 at the very end, it says, All the people took note of David's public display of integrity, and they were pleased. 
Indeed, everything the king did pleased them, so that on that day, all the people, and then just so we understand who he's talking about, all Israel, the ones who were aligned with Ishi in opposition to David, now all the people of Israel knew that King David had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Nair. And the king said to his men, this is private. It's not, it was not a facade in public. Privately, he says, do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I'm weak, and these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. He's lamenting what uh, Joab did, one of the sons of Zariah. May the Lord repay the evildoer, Joab, according to his evil deeds. David's integrity is played out in public and private as grief for Abner brings joy to all the people, including the people of Israel. You know, David has maintained his integrity when he dealt with the men of Jabesh-Gilead honorably, when he dealt now with the death of Abner honorably. He's distanced himself and lamented from the evil and lamented the death of this great leader. David's integrity puts the interests of the people above his own benefit. And as a result, the people are united. Integrity is the core for unity. You know, today when you talk about uh, church unity, a lot of people will say that really the, the, the big deal to build a church that's unified is vision. Vision. If you have a leader who can cast a compelling vision of the future, it'll unite the people around it and you'll have unity. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that statement, but my experience has been that the core of a unified church, and by the way, you are benefactors today of an extraordinarily unified church, um, is the integrity of her leaders. North Wake has been, throughout her history, without any of those knock-down, drag-out church fights. We have never had one where people are standing up over here and yelling and fussing at those people over there, and these people are yelling imprecatory psalms back at the people over here. We have never been through that mess. And I attribute it to the high integrity and authentic, spiritual authenticity of our elders as they lead our church and shepherd our church. Um, the only time that Northwake virtually came apart at the seams was the first two years of the church when there were no elders. It was the appointment of godly, high-integrity elders that unified our body at that point in time, prior to my coming. And these men have been instrumental in the unity that you're a benefactor of today when you sit down in the midst of a body of Christ where there's not a lot of fussing and fighting going on. But it's not just leaders. It's church members who reconcile well it's people that are not sitting over here. I keep picking on you guys on the side. Not sitting here because there's somebody over here that they don't like. Our church is blessed because people keep short accounts and they work things out and they refuse to go about life unreconciled to somebody who's their brother and sister in Christ and they're going to spend all eternity with them. So I can't tell you how important it is that you have the integrity to be reconciled 
with your brothers and sisters when you have issues with them. We have issues, lots of issues. But if you will work to honor Christ by the way that you are reconciled, you'll take the high road and humble yourself no matter how wrong the other person is and seek to be reconciled. That integrity builds unity in the body of Christ. And that's exactly what's happening amongst the people of Israel and Judah under David's high integrity leadership. In chapter 4, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron. He lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. I mean, Ishi's thinking, if they killed David, what are they going to do with me, Ishbosheth, the man of shame? And he is terrified, and of course, Israel now is without leader. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. Ishi had two military commanders. Um, Benah and Rechab, and they were sons of Rimon the Berethite from the tribe of Benjamin. And it tells you a whole bunch of information about that that is not, we don't have time to explore this morning. And it tells you about Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet and explains how he was lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. And he'll figure later in 2 Samuel, but his story is told here just to let you know that the only, the only appropriate heir of Saul is Ishi. Uh, Mephibosheth would be the only other op- option, but because of his crippled status, he was not available to serve as king. So Rechab and Benah, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach, which is the way to die of choice in these three chapters. Then Rechab and his brother, Benah, slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. And after they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head, another favorite tactic in Samuel. And taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy. Who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. And they're so proud, they have the head of Ishi and they hold it out to David, and they do not realize they have just made the biggest miscalculation of their life. They have miscalculated David's integrity. And David answers Rechab and his brother Benah, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, as surely as the Lord lives. Who has delivered me out of all trouble? He says, The Lord delivered me out of all trouble, not y'all. When a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, this is the Amalekite from a story or a chapter or two ago who killed Saul and came, thought he was telling David good news. He said, When he told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house, on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order, and his men killed him. And they cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Now again, amidst all the blood and gore here, you... I want you to see that David is acting out of absolute integrity. While these men have eliminated his adversary, they did it in in a murderous and dishonorable way. And so David will have nothing to do with it. In fact, he judges them and kills them because of their wanton act of murder. 
Not only does he condemn what is evil, but again, he honors what is good, and he gives at least Ishbosheth's head an honorable burial. Honor what is good, condemn what is evil, no matter what it costs you. David's integrity is the thing that now has set the stage for the full reunification of God's people. He refuses to be sucked into questionable acts. He deals justly with his enemies and those who wrongly slay them to earn favor with him. He puts aside personal gain for the good of God's people, specifically for the unity of God's people. I'd like to just share in closing one other example of some of the temptations that we face concerning our integrity. It comes from Donald Miller, and he says, I live for a time with my friend and mentor, John McMurray, where the first rule, he said, is always to tell the truth. John and I were sitting in the family room one night when he asked about my new cell phone, and I told him I got it for free. He said, well, how how did you get it for free? I said, well, my other one broke, so I took it in to see if they could replace it, and they had this new computer system at the store, and they didn't have their records, so they didn't know whether mine was still under warranty, and it wasn't, I knew, uh, because it was more than a year old. The guy asked me about it, and I told him I didn't know, but it was right around a year old, so just a white lie. So anyway, the phone was messed up, so they replaced it with a newer model, so I got a free phone. And his mentor responds by saying, did you ever see that movie Family Man with Nicolas Cage? He said, there's a scene where Nicolas Cage walks into a store to get a cup of coffee, and Don Cheadle plays the guy behind the counter. And there's a girl in line before Nicolas Cage, and she's buying something for 99 cents, and she hands Cheadle a dollar, and and Cheadle takes $9 and counts them out to her for change. So she gives him a dollar on a 99-cent item. She's supposed to get a penny back. He gives her, counts out $9. She sees that he's handing handing her way too much money, yet she picks it up and puts it in her pocket without saying a word. And as she's walking out the door, Cheadle stops her to give her another chance. And he asks her if there's anything else she needs. She shakes her head, says no, and walks out. Don says, "I, I see what you're getting at. He says, let me finish. So Cheadle looks over at Nicolas Cage and he says, did you see that? She was willing to sell her character, her integrity, for $9. Nine dollars. And after a little while, Donald Miller speaks up and he says, do you think that's what I'm doing with the phone? Do you think I'm selling my character? And to be honest, he says, I said this with a smirk. I do. I do, John said. The Bible talks about having a calloused heart. That's when sin, after a period of time, has so deceived us, we no longer care whether our thoughts and actions are right or wrong. Our hearts will go there easily and often over what looks like little things, little white lies. And all I'm saying to you as your friend is, watch out for this kind of thing. Donald Miller says, I went back to the store the next day. It cost me more than $9, but I got my integrity back. Some of you this morning need to go back to the store and get your integrity back. You have sold it far too cheaply. And so this morning, I'd like to give you that opportunity. If God is poking you in some way, shape, or form, as we talk about integrity, that you've cut a corner or or bent a rule that was dishonoring to God, even a little white lie, and it's pressing on you this morning, 
It's an invitation from the kindness of God to simply repent. And to help you with that, I'd like to encourage you as the worship team comes to lead us in our song of response, closing worship, that you simply make your way down to the front and kneel here if you're able or you can just stand here. One of our leaders will come alongside you and they already know what to pray for you. You don't have to tell them anything unless you want to. They'll just pray that God will honor this act of restoring your integrity and repentance for cutting corners. And I know some of you are thinking, if I do that, then everybody's going to know that I have a problem with my integrity. Exactly. Exactly. And they'll also know that you are willing to do something about it. See, that's what it means to be a man or a woman who seeks after God with all your heart. It's not that you don't sin, but it's how you deal with your sin. And so... First service, uh, I give this invitation and I go stand over there and then you know what? Nobody moves. Until Matt Cavernon, who spoke earlier, gets up and comes down front and kneels. Seeking repentance, or offering repentance and seeking forgiveness for whatever integrity issues that God in his mercy prompted before him. See, that's what it means to seek after God with all your heart. That it matters more that you would repent of your sin than what somebody might think about you repenting of your sin. And so if you would stand, I'd like to pray for you. And we'll close with this song and this opportunity for you to obey God in this very practical way, I hope.